What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, an in-depth exploration of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here with me. So, a quick word about this episode. It is definitely a little off the beaten, most notorious path. It's a little more lighthearted than usual due to the subject matter. The fictional story of Victor Frankenstein and his monster and the interpretation of that story. Um, Definitely not historical true crime, (laughs) but lots of history today. Also, I wanted to do a Halloween-themed episode last year, actually, and recorded this interview in late October of 2020. Oh, and and in a hotel room (laughs) with with backup equipment, by the way, hence my echoey voice, as you will soon notice, I'm sure. But but I wasn't able to get the episode out on time. I don't remember the exact details of, of what happened, but I kind of had to sit on it. So it's it's been patiently awaiting release, and, and I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. So I hope you enjoy it. Again, a little bit different than what you come to expect on this show. And I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. So another question posed to me by a listener, a patron named Bobby. Her question is, what got you interested in true crime? Is there any story that is on your bucket list to cover? Well, I I, I don't really have any idea when it started to begin with my interest in true crime. 
I remember as a, a little kid driving down from Minnesota to Texas with my family on New Year's Eve. This was probably around 1980, 1981. Uh, we, we stopped in Dodge City, Kansas and visited the Boot Hill Museum. And I remember how excited I was, especially excited because I had watched a lot of Gunsmoke reruns with my mom. And I knew pretty well the Marshall Dillon television version of Dodge City. But I had a blast, got my souvenirs. Um, and along the way, one of those souvenirs that I picked up was a slim orange book called Gunfighters of the Old West, written by Lee McCar McCarty. Yeah, Lee McCarty, which I read until it pretty much dissolved in my hands. So part two of that question, what story is on your bucket list to cover? There, there are a few. Definitely D.B. Cooper. I'd like to do a whole episode on the gunfight at the OK Corral. You know, John Dillinger, He's been mentioned over and over, but I've never done a really comprehensive episode on Dillinger. That would be fun. Uh, a Babyface Nelson episode would be great, too. Uh, the Dalton Gang. They were mentioned briefly on an episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. But I need to do a full episode on the Dalton Gang. I've, I've tried for years to get an episode done on Meyer Lansky with no luck. It's one thing to say, you know, it's one thing to say I want to do an episode on this, but it's another thing to find a book and then to find an author, number one, who's alive, number two, that I can get a hold of, number three, that is willing to do the interview with me. There are a lot of factors go, that, that go into to getting an interview set up. I, I want to do an episode on, on Monk Eastman. Oh, I, I definitely want to do one on Ed Gein. Nero. I'd love to do one on Nero. Oh, um, uh, Germany's Gruber family murders, which I think was mentioned on the Men on the Train episode a while back. But again, that case deserves an episode unto itself. But, but these are some of the, the topics off the top of my head that I think would make excellent, most notorious episodes. Anyway, on with the show. I am so pleased to have as my guests today, Lester D. Friedman, Emeritus Professor and former Chair of the Media and Society Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and Allison B. Cavey. She is a professor in the History Department and Chair of the Humanities and Justice Program at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Well, they are the authors of numerous books. They've co-authored two books together, and the book that they are here to talk about today is called Monstrous Progeny, The History of the Frankenstein Narratives. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much. So the first question, uh, how did you decide to come together to work on this book? <laughs> well, uh, um, Allison and I um, know each other. And um, she, a while ago, approached me to do a book with her on Peter Pan, which I had absolutely no interest in. And uh, But she persisted, and we did a book together called Second Star from the Right. And it was actually quite fun. 
And then a little bit later, I said to her, well, you know, that was your obsession, but now let's do my obsession, and that's Frankenstein. And I think you had almost no interest, Allison, or moderate interest. None. None whatsoever. She had uh, no interest. But I'm as persuasive as she is. And so I convinced her. And what we ended up doing, I think, is playing to our strengths. So I think we both sort of did the literature, the novel, and I did the post-novel. And Allison worked more or less on the pre-novel materials, which I didn't know very well, the kind of intellectual zeitgeist that influenced Mary Shelley over time. Um, and so then we we put that together and voila, a bestseller. Yeah, sure. So I'm a 16th century historian of science and natural philosophy, and my research interests other than Peter Pan and Frankenstein are largely Agrippa von Nettesheim, who was a 16th century natural philosopher who got a really bad and unearned reputation for being a black magician due to some misattributions in the 16th and 17th century. And in Frankenstein, Agrippa is blamed for Victor's corruption. And so when uh, Les approached me about this and I had to find something to say about what was clearly the most boring and irritating novel of the 19th century, I, uh, I seized upon the one alley that I could go down with comfort and said, you know, he's not a bad scientist. He's a misplaced Renaissance natural philosopher. And so I argued that his science is not so much bad science, which is awfully judgy, but just 200 years too late, and that Shelley condemns him for not obeying the rules of what was emerging as modern institutional science with things like peer review and um, not institutional review boards, but they would become institutional review boards. So that because he conducted his science by himself with no oversight and had an extremely lax doctoral advisor, his work was dangerous and wound up, of course, being extremely dangerous, both to himself and to his family and friends. So that was really my argument for why this was a book that needed a history um, right, and that right. it owed a great deal to the history of science. But you also wrote about the Northwest Passage. Yes, yeah, so I was just going to say, the other big history of science story for uh, Frankenstein is Arctic exploration and the contest between experience and authoritative knowledge during this period of time, which was ongoing in the Royal Society. So people would come back from whaling expeditions, sometimes whalers and sometimes natural philosophers who went um, at, to see what it was like, and they would report ice and ice and cold and ice and ice and cold and giant bears and uh, <laughs> ice and cold and dark. And then... Um, People who knew a lot, who were university trained, would say, but that can't be right. You just weren't in the correct place because Pliny says there was an open polar sea and that it's gorgeous and warm and temperate all year. And you just obviously didn't find it. And so the Royal Society sees this big debate over uh, whether there is a temperate zone in the middle of this region. And for me, it illustrated um, an intellectual struggle that I had already seen in the 16th century and a lot of people talk about in the 17th century about how we determine the kind of knowledge we value in science. Mm -hmm. So I found mm -hmm. it a really interesting and refreshing um, 
addition to my own thinking on the subject. And I hope that readers also found it more interesting. My students hate it. Um, they seem to think that I'm preoccupied with nothing and that Les's chapters are way more interesting because they're about movies. And it's true, they're more readable and more interesting. But I think without the history of the Frankenstein narratives, you lose a little bit of comprehension um, and a lack of appreciation from where Shelley was writing. She was extraordinarily well-educated. Extraordinarily. She situates this novel so well in the intellectual debates of her moment. But the, the stuff you wrote is fascinating, and, and you're absolutely right. Where we disagree, well, we don't really disagree about the novel. I mean, I really like it better than you like it, um, and you trash it all the time. But I think that, I think that, and it is overwritten, it is overwrought, it is within a tradition that was going on of Gothic literature during the 19th century. But what Shelley did, which is different than anything else that came before it, and what makes it not a pot boiler, despite its rhetorical flourishes, to be kind, um, is that in the past, when there was the creation of a being, and I'm thinking of either Faust or I'm thinking of the golem in Jewish tradition, that was always merged with a kind of supernatural or religious or um, evil spirits. What Shelley did is she puts it into the laboratory. She makes Frankenstein and his creature uh, modern prototypes to some extent of the... Um, researcher and the products of the research. And of course, as as culture evolved um, and we became much more of a technological society, we saw again and again the dangers of technological advancement, the double-edged sword of something like atomic power and atomic bombs, or now we could argue social media, do they bring us closer or are they set to destroy us? So that the the warnings that are in Shelley's book, and we can talk about that, it's more nuanced, I think, than most people talk about it. But the warnings uh, of technology and doing something not because you can, but because you should, um, that became even more prevalent in our culture, our time, than it was in the 19th century. So the book, you know, really has a life of its own, even though most people are far more familiar with the movies than, than read the novel, I think. Yeah, that, I'd like to ask you about that, because most of us, I'm sure, are, are familiar with the very basic story of Frankenstein in, in its most elemental form, at least like you said, from the films, if nothing else. But for those who don't know, would, would you mind summarizing the original story as, as it was written by Mary Shelley? Sure. Man creates monster. Monster goes awry, tries to kill man. Man and monster fight to the death. End of story. I have a much better narrative than that. <laughs> I, I, I knew you would. I served it up to you as a softball, so I hit it out of the park. Okay. So, disturbed child. Ah, yes, yes, Disturbed yes. and overprotected child spends adolescence engaging in homosocial desire with friend Henry and foretold marriage to 
girl with whom he was raised as a sister. Mom dies. Boy sees lightning struck tree while reading Agrippa. <laughs> yes. Boy heads off to study chemistry after I love this. Go ahead. separating from friends. Very sad and wan. Is rejected for his Neoplatonic interests. Finds success in chemistry. Goes off on his own. Digs up bodies. Hangs out in graveyards. Spends too much time by himself and not enough time doing work. Ooh. Creates monster. Gets scared of monster. Has psychiatric breakdown. Friends come to rejuvenate him. Friend dies. Monster continues murdering. Leads recalcitrant Victor on chase across continent. Victor blessedly dies after finding friend Walton and narrating his story. Monster yeah. heads off, perhaps to self-immolation, perhaps to life in the Arctic, where he seems to do quite well. He does. <laughs> now, Allison has actually, in that very clever summary, pointed to a number of the ways, beside as a horror story, the novel is read. For example, uh, she points to the notion of psychological trauma, and perhaps the creature can be seen fairly easily as a person with a disability or as an abused child. She points to what's called the queer reading, the whole notion that um, about Victor and Henry and Victor and Walton and all of that that goes on. And uh, we also could throw in a feminist reading of the novel. Here's a situation in which women no longer have to give birth, and we could argue whether that's positive or negative. And finally, a kind of social metaphor that the creature is indeed anything that spins outside of our control. So it could be technology. It could, it's used consistently as a political metaphor. So there's lots of various readings of the novel, even in the, the short way that Allison gave you a praise of the novel. You can see already how you can plug the novel into a lot of contemporary uh, concerns and fears and anxieties uh, as well, because monsters are always transgressive. I mean, what in the book we write, what makes a monster monstrous? Well, the answer is that the monster somehow violates and transgresses uh, social norms and somehow throws the status quo out of whack and must be destroyed. There's a monster right there. I hear one. It's a very bad monster. <laughs> bad monster. So the monster is a symbol of, of, as I say, transgressiveness, of violating the social order. That's what makes a monster monstrous. But you think that the monster is the creature, and I think the monster is Victor. I, I can buy that. I, I don't have any argument with that. But, but part of the thing, I don't know if you would agree with this, Allison, part of the appeal of the novel, perhaps over time, even though it's metamorphosized in a different way, is that in some ways neither Victor nor the creature are totally evil. They're both severely flawed, but Mary Shelley is not painting even one of them as as 
a totally, you know, not the shark in Jaws, not just running around killing people for no reasons. You know, you're so mean to that shark. We've talked about this before. <laughs> I've written on Spielberg. That's what she's talking about. So do you, <laughs> buy, do you buy that argument that they're not, neither one of them is particularly evil? They're just flawed? I don't think the creature is flawed. I think the creature is driven by a very elementary form of justice. He offers Victor the chance to make him a mate and give him society that he can feel accepted by. And when Victor says no, he realizes he has no control over his own fate except through uh, revenge. And he pursues revenge against Victor and then mourns Victor's death. So are you, you want to argue that Victor should have created a mate? This would be interesting. I do. I want to argue that Victor should have created a mate because I like to give the creature the benefit of the doubt that he would have followed his word and gone off to live apparently in America with his new yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, in America. Yeah. Do but you think the I creature- would like to point out, nowhere in this novel do females of any kind, human or creature, have agency ever. That's right. And the irony is it's acclaimed as the great feminist novel. No, it's acclaimed as the great novel written by the daughter of a feminist. Yeah, it's different. Well, that's true. Do you think the creature can procreate then? No. No. Okay. I don't either, by the But way. he could have had a friend. Well, I, I mean... We don't all need to breed, breeder. I, I, thank you. Uh, you know, in several of the variations of the Frankenstein myth, Eric, uh, or narrative... Uh, two two variations. One, the creator, whoever it might be, creates a female, and of course, inevitably falls in love with her, much to the tragic end, almost always of both of them. Uh, or sometimes the character of the creator is actually a woman who uses the creature uh, that she creates to revenge, wreak havoc, and gain revenge on men who have been bad to her. Right. Actually, I've, I've been watching uh, Penny Dreadful. I don't know if you've seen that television show oh, or not. Oh, it's fabulous. The first year, you're talking about the first iteration of it. Yeah, right, right. Yes, the first. Yeah, I yeah, haven't seen the, the City of Angels. No, I, I'm watching the, the original. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Mary Shelley, if you don't mind, and, and the circumstances under which she wrote her novel. Well, it it, it is um, uh, actually quite quite sad circumstances um, in the way she wrote the novel. Um, the the Shelleys in general went through a whole period of of personal tragedies right before she started to write the novel. Her two her two week old daughter had died in March of eighteen fifteen. Her sister had committed. Um, suicide in 1816. But I would think the most powerful, powerful event in Mary Shelley's life was that her mother, the eminent feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, died giving, well, not giving birth, but 11 days after giving birth to Mary Godwin at that time of septicemia. And indeed, in the novel, if you remember, uh, Elizabeth causes the death of Victor's mother by infecting her with scarlet fever. So it's a kind of 
replaying of that. So there's a lot of death um, that's going on during this period of time. And indeed, not only the death of Shelley himself right after, but again, after the publication of their novel, ironically, nine months after their son William died in 1819. And Mary herself uh, in 1822 barely survived a miscarriage of her own. So, you know, the birth of children during this era was a, was a true gamble. And perhaps Mary Shelley was relieving women of that burden, if you want to call it that. But certainly the death of her mother that her father also claimed she had played a significant role in haunted Mary Shelley her, her whole life. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so where did she write this? How long did it take her to write this book? What was the spark? What was the inspiration? Well, you you want me to do this, Allison, or you want to do it? Is Allison gone from us? Well, I'll... Sorry. No, I'm here. I just oh. want to... I have it on mute when you're talking, so there's no background noise. Oh, I see. Um, no, you go ahead and take it. You're doing well with the bio stuff. I would just say rude things about how Percy Shelley was a hoe, so it's better that you do it. <laughs> Well, um, Shelley, <laughs> Shelley and Mary ran away, and very notoriously ran away. He was married. She was quite young. Um, and they traveled around the world, and they found themselves on Lake Geneva in Switzerland and living next to probably the greatest rock star of the early 19th century, Lord Byron. And they were all working, and Byron was writing his poetry. Shelley was writing as well. And it was, um, a, uh, and also Byron's doctor was there, uh, John Polidori, who wrote one of the first vampire novels. So ironically, Frankenstein and the precursor of Dracula were written at the same time. Um, and there was the explosion of, and I forget where, do you remember where the the volcano was? I don't remember. But there was an explosion of a volcano that essentially sent ash almost all over the world and and the skies were, were um, darkened during the time they were in Geneva and it was raining during this period of time and she was stuck in the house with these three strange guys probably taking a lot of drugs I think at that period of time as well. And Byron proposed a, a contest that they all write a ghost story and and ignore that. And she and she and Polidori were the only ones that actually finished their ghost stories, though Byron and Percy Shelley were, of course, working on other things. Byron on Child Harold, Shelley on Prometheus. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that's how it all came about: being stuck in the rain, sort of like living in upstate New York. Interesting. You sound like a busy guy there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know who that is, but I ignored it. Between phones and dogs, we're having a lot of background, you know, soundtrack. Sure. So, so what were the the, the period sources, literary, historical, scientific sources that that Shelley drew upon while creating the plot for the book. One of the things that we know Mary Shelley did that was relatively unusual for a woman of her time was to go to anatomical 
sort of performances. For example, Galvani was on tour at the time demonstrating what they call the galvanic current, that if you hooked a frog up to electric current and it was dead, you could still make its body twitch um, by electrocuting it. So there was this idea that the body was made of nervous energy and that perhaps life itself was composed of nervous impulses. And she and Percy Shelley attended those anatomical experiments. We know she was also remarkably well-educated in natural philosophy or science, whatever phrase you prefer. She uh, might have drawn her father's ire for killing her mother, but she certainly gained a good education from William Godwin and was part of scientific salon that took place at their house and um, probably some of the foremost intellectuals of the time came to visit her father. He was a philosopher, but he was very interested in science and natural philosophy and brought her with him to lectures and to discussions about things like the ongoing presence of the soul, whether the soul could be separated from the body. Um, he was not a religious person, obviously, but these were questions that had both scientific and religious overtones, and she certainly participated in those discussions. Uh, she, uh, in terms of literature, she was a voracious reader, as was Byron and her husband. Well, he wasn't her husband at this time, but her future husband. Um, I think, and Alison and I just, I, I think, disagree on this, but I think the major literary influence on Shelley and consequently Frankenstein is Paradise Lost. And she was an avid Milton scholar, as were the rest of the um, romantic poets and writers. It seems ironic that someone as radical as Percy Shelley would revere Milton, but he did, and perhaps for all the wrong reasons, they they saw Milton, even though he was a Puritan, they saw Milton as a revolutionary, and they saw the hero of Paradise Lost as Lucifer, not God. And uh, better to reign, what is it, better to reign in Rule hell? Rule in than hell than ser- reign in heaven. Yeah, serve in heaven. Uh, and so, uh, you know, um, it's called, and, and of course she knew Greek and, and Roman mythology. It's called the modern Prometheus. Uh, the subtitle is called the modern Prometheus, but she read everyone. She read Shakespeare. I mean, Allison's right. She was incredibly, um, literate. I want to say that I don't disagree with the import of oh. Paradise Lost. The place we, where we disagree is who was Adam and who was Lucifer. Right, right. Um, but I, I, in fact, gave a much more Miltonic reading of it than you did. You did. I know, I know. Because and I consider that a triumph of my influence on you. I taught a whole class on Paradise I know, Lost. I know, I know, I know. I'm not, and you tend to forget my doctoral dissertation is on Milton and Shelley. So no wonder I would see it that way. In, even <laughs> from my young days, uh, when I taught literature before film, so you can see how much fun it is to write together, can't you, Eric? <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's great fun. And we will be back in just a moment. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So did Shelley intend, do you think, for, for there to be a hero in the story and, and for there to be a villain? Is there a good versus evil element in Frankenstein? You know, I lean to saying no. And there's also, and I think people forget this, there doesn't seem, I don't, I'm not so sure. And again, Allison and I have had this out. I'm not so sure that Shelley criticizes Victor for his goals or even for his obsession. I think what she criticizes him for is not taking into account what might happen if he did this. He never thinks 
beyond the idea of I'm going to do this and this is wonderful. He never thinks what is he going to do with the creation that he's made? You know, what, what, and here we get very modern as well. And, and Allison and I can talk about this. Does Victor have any responsibilities ethically, morally, financially go that way, if you'd like, um, to his creation? Is he in essence, a pseudo father figure who, who really, whose flaw is to not take care of his offspring. That seems to me one of the functional, central, moral questions in the book. Yeah, he, he rejects the monster, and he, he also doesn't give the monster a name, right? Well, but why does he reject him? That's rhetorical, Eric. Why? Because he's ugly. And, you know, so you say to yourself as you're, as you're seeing this, well, he... He made him. Didn't he see what he looked like all along? I mean, why is he surprised that this creature looks like this creature? Uh, so it, it, you know, it's an odd thing. Yes, he rejects him totally, but only on surface appearances at that point. So if we want to go back to Milton, I think there is a very religious reading of this book, which is to say, in in the Bible and in preternatural or neoplatonic understandings of preternatural beings like angels and demons, they have no will. They only exist to fulfill divine intent. Mm -hmm. And so when Lucifer falls, his big uh, mistake is that he exercises will opposed to God. So if we were to read this in a Miltonic context or Miltonian concept, context, what we would say is, Victor can only ever be read as human because he is the willful human in the garden. But the angel has to be the creature. The creature disobeys his creator. He develops agency of his own and he becomes destructive and a ruler in his own way. And so I think there is an element of evil, if you want to call it that, or at least maleficence bad intent um victor is only ever human but the creature had the chance to be angelic and chose to be demonic yeah but god doesn't create angels I mean, of course he did where do they come from aren't they souls who did well in life no well is that a christian reading of that i don't know where do angels come from Angels were created by God to maintain the order of the universe, and demons were created by God to test the order of the universe. Both compete for human souls. That's both a Catholic and a Protestant reading well into the modern world. So God creates like a plantation where he uses the angels for... It's not a plantation. It's a universe. <laughs> I knew you'd love that. Uh, yeah, we'll just disagree. But they have no will of their own. In that way, they are always slaves. So they always do God's will? They have to. Yeah. yeah they yeah. don't have a choice. Uh, he says smite, they smite. When they don't smite, they get cast down or frozen in caves. He's cranky, God. Well, I agree with you about the Miltonic reading that, that Lucifer is punished for exercising free will and for essentially 
challenging God's power. And, and the creature, to some extent, is the same thing, right? Does the same thing. Well, the creature... See, I'm reading the creature as a created being, not as a human. Humans have agency. I see. Right? That's what differentiates them from angels and demons. Victor chooses to do a very stupid, irresponsible thing with his knowledge. Right. But the creature, I'm arguing, is a created being. Mm -hmm. And so he, he quotes Paradise Lost, and he says to Victor, his creator, I should have been your Adam. And I'm saying that that is a misuse of the text. He should have said, mm. I really am your Lucifer. He says that, doesn't he? He says, yes, I should have been your Adam, and I should have been loved and allowed to do whatever right. I want. Right. But I'm reading it much more strictly according to the rules of um, Milton. Yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. the time that Milton was writing. And I am... I might argue a better early modern historian than Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was terrible at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I hear that argument. I, you know, I think you could play that off. So, so what about the, the monster's soul? I, I know you, oh, you, you now debate that. Now you've said it. Now you've said the word, the four-letter word there, Eric. <laughs> Allison, go. <laughs> All right. So Les was horrified when I began I to argue that there were multiple souls yes. potentially in the creature. I and went I to drink. This. It drove me to drink. It's true. He started drinking heavily <laughs> yes, during this period of time. And I was not drinking heavily during this period of time, which I think may reflect a lot on me. But anyway, <laughs> so as I said, I'm trained as a historian of science and medicine. And there was a lot of curiosity about where the soul was lodged in the body during this period of time. And one of the big objections to anatomical dissection was that when the rapture came, your body would not be able to rise up properly. There would be bits of you everywhere. Um, and that's why it was such a horrible punishment to dismember a criminal after he was hanged, because he was really, really doomed now. Um, or burning, right? That's how heretics were treated in the medieval and early modern period. At any rate, so I argue it may have no soul because humans cannot generate a soul. It could have had one soul. If you're an Aristotelian, the soul would have been in the brain. If you're Platonic, the soul would have been in the heart. It could have had an awful lot of souls. Maybe there was one in every single body part. We really just don't know. And I also contend that there's this interesting puzzle that the creature's being its physical self is a puzzle because in the creation scene which is not very long victor talks about going to abattoir as well as going to graveyards and so there could have been animal pieces mixed up with the I, human pieces i agree and nobody at the time could agree on whether animals had souls or not so now this is this um, eric becomes an important question uh, in the reading of the novel, uh, because if the creature has a soul, this is very much more simple version than Allison is able to talk about. If the creature has a soul, then the creature is human. And that means what's done to the creature is inhuman by society. If the creature doesn't have a soul, at least as they would read it in the 19th century, then what's done to the creature is not immoral, 
is really just defensive more than anything else after a while. So this notion of, and of course, you can imagine very quickly, Eric, that this leads back to the abortion debate. You can see how this goes right there about who's human and not human, because that's the issue. Is the creature human and therefore deserving of personhood and being treated as a human being, or is the creature a monster? And then we can deal with the creature in any way we see fit to rid ourselves of this transgression of society. So the soul, it's, it's not, I mean, Allison's very philosophical and knows a lot about this, but it's a very practical question in the novel, and it's an extremely practical question today in terms of that particular um, issue. Now, you could push that even further if you want to look at another ethical dilemma that, of course, the Shelley novel speaks to, and that's cloning. I mean, I mean, if you can clone Barbara Streisand's dog, how far away are we from really cloning a human being? And if we clone a human being, does that human being have a soul? Is that human being a person? What rights does that new creation have? And what responsibilities do we have towards that creation as a society and a moral culture? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> complicated and this is this is like a 19th century teenager who wrote this thing i mean really it's it's a ya novel <laughs> so so why, why do you think that there is no real explanation of the mechanics of, of how frankenstein w was brought to life that, that's kind of skimmed over in the book a little bit isn't well, it she didn't know how to do it <laughs> I mean, what, what would you write? Now, if you look at the movies or you look at the subsequent iterations of the narrative, they spend incredible amounts of time on the creation scene. You know, there's lightning and things are buzzing and fizzing and there's, uh, there are templates over here and bottles over here and, and then, you know, goes on and on and on and on because they had to make you as an audience member sitting watching a movie, they had to make you believe this was possible or else the whole thing falls apart. Whereas Mary Shelley gets away with writing, what is it, Allison, four sentences? Something like that. It's actually several paragraphs. Oh, is it? But I, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of preparing the body. Preparing, right. But the actual birth is four or five sentences. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But I, I still think it's worth examining those sentences a little bit because they owe a great deal to the bigger thesis I think she's arguing, which is that even if she did know, which of course she did not, no responsible scientist would tell because it's so dangerous. This kind of knowledge is dangerous and irresistible. Mm. And again, I'm going to say that this is where I think the Paradise Lost thesis is so useful. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, this is not. You think readers or uh, listeners are going to find it interesting? This part of this, or do you want to talk about monsters and things in the time we have left, or where do you want to go? 
I, I know one of the arguments that that you put forward in your book is the the possibility that the, the monster might have come alive through uh, demonic help. Yes, that's my Not argument. Mine. So, <laughs> um, I mean, it's very easy to think, I suppose, that he just electrocuted enough the brain or the heart and restarted them and then blood started to flow. And no, none of that is practical. So given the science of the moment, I have to argue that this is the Faustian bargain. He doesn't maybe know he made this deal, but a demon sees a chance to corrupt Victor by bringing his creation to life. He's already been tempted through knowledge. And now the demon enters the creature brings it to life, and Victor commits immediately his first major sin. He rejects his own creation. He fails as a creator. He fails as a scientist because he does not take responsibility for what he terms a mistake. And then he fails as a father. Where is this demon coming from? Where is this demon you keep mentioning? They're around all the time. Don't you read early modern stuff? I mean, uh, Dr. Faustus, Marlowe's Faustus. I read, Franken I read Frankenstein. Out. Where's the demon in Frankenstein? They're there. They're there all the time. You just have to assume they're there. <laughs> they don't just stand there wearing tiny little horns and waving their forked tails. Sometimes they're that voice in your head that says, you can do this. Nobody will mind. Go ahead. You should bring the dead body to life. Do it, do it, do it. No one will mind that you stole its legs from someone. <laughs> Were you drinking laudamin when you came up with this? No, they don't let me have anything nice. I'm just stuck here in the house with the dogs. <laughs> By myself, with no oversight, doing nothing wrong. <laughs> well, as you can see, we disagree. So, so what is what is the evidence? Is there evidence that that Victor hallucinates the monster the entire time, and that he is he is the real murderer? I made that up. It's true. I was on no sleep at all in those months. Yes. <laughs> but I contend that Victor had a psychiatric breakdown. Yep. Imagined he brought the thing to life, commits the murders himself, and spends the entire time in a sort of fugue state with neither memory nor knowledge of what he's doing. Uh, I'm speechless. I, I, I think she. I think she <laughs> muted. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think about that? I think it makes no sense. Uh, I mean, there are people who saw the creature. Unless you, I guess, you, Allison's argument holds water if you think the whole thing is made up. But there seems no to one be saw the creature. Less. The blind guy saw the creature. Blind people cannot see. <laughs> well, Walton saw the creature. Walton was a natural philosopher on no food, no sleep, in the middle of the dark, hallucinating because he'd done nothing but eat saltpeter for a long time. All right, let's talk about monsters. No, I want to finish this uh, because I think it is worth pointing out. Victor had multiple breakdowns yes, he, that are recorded in the does, novel, right? He does. He creates the creature, brings it to life, and then he has a mental breakdown and Henry comes and nurses him back right. to health. Then... He thinks he's with his buddy and they're on their grand European tour, which makes no sense in the middle of the novel, but we're overlooking that. And they're on their grand European tour and he goes to make the creature a friend, but somehow Henry doesn't know. They're in another country by themselves, but Henry doesn't know his bestie is making a body 
in the other room. And then Henry winds up dead. No one sees the creature. They just see a person in a rowboat. And Victor winds up in prison, where I have to say, I think he could have stayed, having himself a complete catatonic breakdown. He then gets resurrected, enough for his father to bail him out, and boom, more people die. This time, Elizabeth, who we knew was doomed from the beginning. But the creature himself only ever appears to Victor. And do you even know that Walton is real? Uh, I'm going back to drinking now. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I mean, Allison is, uh, okay. So are we done, Allison, with this point? We are because I'm right. And your only argument is that you have no argument. You just don't like it. Okay. So Eric, uh, (laughs) yeah. Want to talk about Godzilla? We know a lot about Godzilla. (laughs) Well, I'd I'd love it if you, if you could, maybe, maybe we can bring it into the 20th century. The Um, Frankenstein narrative. Yeah. Talk about some of the 20th century incarnations of the Frankenstein story and how it evolves or devolves, I guess, depending on. Well, I will say you've all, you've already mentioned the four letter word. You might as well mention the six letter word, which is robots. This is our, this is our other disagreement. I see the, the novel moving. Well, I see it moving in several directions. The narrative, I see it moving first into cyborgs, half organic, half non-organic materials, whether that's a knee replacement or the ever-increasing ways that human beings are being altered by cybernetics and uh, cyborgian kind of, of, of arms and legs and various things. So that we're partially moving in that direction. But then I, I see the next step as being robots so now we get into Blade Runner and we and, and we get into these kind of films where even as early as 2001, if you want to go back there, where uh, scientists or technological people create these artificial beings who more and more begin to look like human beings. So it's more and more difficult to dismiss them as updated vacuum cleaners and they have a personality. So the, the question then becomes all the same questions we talk about earlier in, in movies like um, um, AI, for example, Spielberg's movie AI, where they, they essentially adopt a robotic child to replace their child who is in a sort of a suspended animation. So the question becomes when we create these mechanical replicants to use the Blade Runner term, and we make them more and more and more human looking, feeling, even thinking, are they human? And the same question arises that arose with Victor's creature. Do we owe them the rights and responsibilities that we owe other human being, i.e. not to kill them, mostly, or return them to the factory when they're defective and just get a new one out. Hmm, interesting. 
<laughs> so I think that robots are different yeah. than the creature because robots are not natural. And I, I confess it's my only Aristotelian affection is the division between the natural and the non-natural. So for me, I can see clones. I can see, I can push it to cyborgs. Mm -hmm. I absolutely can see Godzilla, who's this natural thing that gets corrupted by science into a gigantic beast or as a mythological creature, depending on the narrative you're picking mm -hmm. for Godzilla. Um, I can see things like Megalodon, a fabulous, terrible sci-fi film that everybody should see about a gigantic ancient prehistoric shark. Um, I can even see Sharknado as part of the Frankenstein oh, story, but I cannot see the sci the robot films. I just can't because there has to be a human element for this to can work. Can robots for me. have a soul? No, because they don't have anything in which oh, to lodge it. But I think that when we talked about AI, which is to me the most disturbing of the robot yeah. films because that yeah. child is programmed to right. love. And there is a biological means of programming to love. And so that for me is where we start to see this really complicated divide between the natural and the non-natural. And it is the only example that we've discussed that I've ever been willing to say, I think that the, child in that and the other robots are perhaps more human than the humans but that does not necessarily mean that i think that they have souls i just think they can mimic human behavior so convincingly that they have adopted both the best and the worst characteristics of well, humanity there's the television show dark mirror that i think is really worth discussing but, here but, uh uh, obviously, one of the paradoxes in the film is that the megas, the robots, are far more moral than the orgas, the humans. And Spielberg and and um, uh, Philip K. Dick uh, obviously play with that that notion. I don't think it is Philip K. Dick. Um, it's Isaac Asimov. It's Asimov. Thank you. Makes that that's the kind of intelligent. Uh, paradox at the center of that film, and it is an extremely disturbing film on numerous, numerous levels. I I fully agree with you uh, about it. Um, well, I I hear your point as I do often, um, but I do think that um, you're saying that nothing inorganic can have a spiritual side. Well, it can have a spiritual side. It just can't have a soul. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We we agree disagree still after all these years of doing this. I would love it if you could compare Mary Shelley's version of Frankenstein to the Frankenstein that most of us know from movies and film. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can do that. Um, one of the things you have to realize that in between, there's a hundred years basically between Mary Shelley's publication and the first movie more than a hundred years, but Frankenstein didn't disappear. It was indeed always in the zeitgeist, particularly in the form of plays, so that a lot of things accrued to the narrative over time. I'll give you a very quick example. Because they needed to turn, change the scenery, they needed to close the curtain at one point, so they invented an assistant for Frankenstein, Fritz, who of course becomes a standard um, character in the movies. 
and the the sort of halfway point between human and non-human, if you will, almost always a hunchback and, and stunted in growth. Um, so there are many things that occurred during this particular period of time. Um, uh, the director of the first Frankenstein, James Whale, famously claimed that he never read the novel and uh, he wasn't particularly interested in the novel. But what did interest him was the idea of of uh, humans reaching beyond their grasp and also the relationship between a creator and a creation. So we've already talked about some of the things that have changed. For example, the expansion and the ongoing expansion of the birth scene. Um, and also the, the, the film ends with a kind of, look, well, let me back up and say that the horror film has a three-part structure that's in almost all of them. It begins with a normal heteronormative middle-class kind of setting. A monster erupts and destroys that middle-class setting, and the monster is destroyed, at least temporarily, and that middle-class setting uh, and heteronormative notion is indeed um, uh, reestablished. And that's what happens in the, the film that he ends up back with Elizabeth, basically, uh, at the end of the film. And so everything is sort of settled. Also, there's a religious element that is in the film and the subsequent films that this is sort of violating the laws of God and nature to do what Frankenstein tried to do. So the, um, the characters are, are drawn much more black and white. And I suppose the main thing I should say is that the creature is mute. Whereas, of course, in the book, as you know, the creature is quite literate, is quite moral, is quite articulate in stating his case to Victor himself. So uh, that kind of muteness adds to the poignancy of the creature, I think. And Karloff gives a, a great iconic performance because when we think of the creature, we think of the Karloff uh, makeup that he did. So that would be a, a down and quick version of the differences between them. And then all sorts of weird things happen over time, as I've already said. I'm sure, Eric, that you'll want to check out Frankenhooker in, um, on Amazon from this point on, uh, and things like that occur. I was a teenage Frankenstein. I mean, it goes on and on and on, almost every variation. Though one interesting thing that happens ironically in the comic books of which there are many is that the creature becomes not a murderer, but the savior of mankind uh, by protecting humans, weak, frail humans against kind of mythological villains who come to destroy the human race. So that's an odd reversal as well. And of course, Victor Frankenstein turns into the mad doctor that is the prototype of the mad doctor that we know, you know, Dr. Monroe, Dr. Jim uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, you can go on naming all the crazy doctors that, and scientists that you've seen in the movie. Do you have a favorite reimagination or interpretation of, of Frankenstein through book or comic well, book or screen? I'm, I'm a classicist. So I, so I love The Bride of Frankenstein, the second one that, that James Whale directed. And if you want my second favorite, it would be Young Frankenstein. And I fully believe 
Mel Brooks understands Mary Shelley quite well. My favorite is Young yeah. Frankenstein. Not not Fred Gwynn as, as Herman Munster? No, I think it gets crazy by then. <laughs> and then we get to Frankenberry. And uh, it goes on and on. It goes on and on. You know, you know it's... Uh, hey, Alice, don't crash my favorite cereal, please. Well... But what about well, Rocky, Rocky Horror? Horror? I think Rocky yeah, Horror yeah. might Rocky be my Horror's second. Great. Allison starts the last chapter by using the declarative sentence, Frankenstein is inescapable. And she's right. I mean, uh, we used to call each other up or write, it's alive, and then we'd give us the, the next version. I mean, it's all over the place, all over the place. We found a Burger King with a Frankenstein motif. And, of course, there's Halloween on a normal year when people dress up as the creature, and it just it's it's become so much a part of our culture um, that it's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. So so your book is available, I know, through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, right, right. and, and you guys have, have both written other books as well. If you look up either of our last names on you you'll know, Amazon us. or Good Books or any of those, you'll you'll come up with us. I, I have to put in a plug for the local bookstores, right, so... If you want to go to your local bookstore, they can order uh, Monsters Progeny or anything else we've written because clearly we're people you want in your home. We are. Um, <laughs> and support a local bookseller. So I, I do have to put in that pitch because it's so important in these COVID times that we not let right, our local right, bookstores die right. just because Amazon Prime absolutely. will Yeah, you can get that through Greenlight in Brooklyn too is the store. We haven't talked about, you know, we had a sort of banner year when we – we talked about this almost all the time. We went places and we gave various things because it was the 100th anniversary of the novel in 2013. This was fun to get back into the Frankenstein uh, head again for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was great. You're, you're both very entertaining together. I don't know if you've thought about doing maybe vaudeville or something. Or Yeah, we're going on the road. We're going on we the have. road. Yeah. You, you should see us at, in conferences in public. You'd <laughs> be amazed are. how other people don't yes, want to sit it's near true, us. It's true. We <laughs> giggle and make fun of other academics. It's it's very childish. It's childish. <laughs> no, we're we're bad, bad children. Bad. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you very Thanks, much. Eric. Appreciate it. Again, I have been speaking to Lester D. Friedman and Allison B. Cavey. They are co-authors of Monstrous Progeny, A History of the Frankenstein Narratives. This has been another Halloween-themed episode of Most Notorious, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy Halloween, and have a safe tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.